south. The train pulls slowly away from the long platform. Clanking over switch points, it runs on elevated tracks out through the suburbs of Beijing, passing between postmodern office towers, pastel-shaded Soviet-era housing blocks, and the inevitable ranks of new apartment compounds, their uniformity now the architectural hallmark of the Chinese city. As we slip from the city's orbit and into its edgelands, this sleek, white projectile surges, almost imperceptibly to begin with. Soon, though, as it escapes out of Beijing's southwest corner, there is no mistaking the speed which it is carrying out from the city and onto the North China Plain. Elevated above this half-urban, half-rural world, you can watch it being remade. Construction workers scurry, cranes move silently and slowly, bulging piles of rubble and dirt are covered in green netting to keep the dust down. The next season of a novel crop is growing in these fields, more of those identikit new apartment blocks. A digital readout above the carriage door says 146 kilometres per hour, and then, a few minutes later, reaches and holds steady at 296 kilometres per hour. We are travelling on one of the eight verticals of China's high-speed rail network, which over the last 15 years has reached out into almost every corner of the country. By 2025, there will be nearly 40,000 kilometres of high-speed track in China, Trains on it travel at up to 350 kilometres per hour. This journey between Beijing and Wuhan, deep in the country's middle, will take about five hours. An announcement, first in Chinese and then in English, tells passengers that to create a good atmosphere on the train, they should avoid disturbing the order and ensure that they notify the passenger behind them before reclining their seat. Infringements will affect their personal credit score. Flat farmland extends either side of the tracks, a line of poplar trees or a raised yellow dirt track marking the boundaries of the fields. The summer sun is fighting with the pollution haze to make the sky a thin grey-blue. The screen flicks over to display an outside temperature of 35 degrees Celsius. As the train cuts through the fields, the few scattered figures tending the land do not move or look up to note this timetabled white blur streaking across the landscape. It is July 2019, and I am beginning a 3,000-mile journey, retracing the route of a legendary trip around China made in 1992. 27 years and six months previously, deep in a Beijing winter, anyone would be grateful to escape. An old man, accompanied by his wife, children and grandchildren, clambered aboard a very different-looking train for what was apparently a month-long family holiday to China's south. Deng Xiaoping had, until his retirement in 1989, been China's paramount leader. He had risen to power in the post-mad years of the late 1970s and oversaw a swathe of changes intended to modernise the country and restore stability to a society pulled apart during the decade of Mao's Cultural Revolution. None had been more significant than his enthusiastic support for reform and opening, that is, reform of the old planned economy and opening up to outside ideas, trade and investment. Over the course of the late 1970s and 80s, the economic changes that resulted from this policy transformed the country and its people's lives. In late 1989, 
Deng finally gave up his last official position as chairman of the Central Military Commission, marking his official retirement. By this time he was in his mid-80s and his hearing and sight had deteriorated. Deng was facing political difficulties as well. The protests earlier in that year in Beijing and other cities around China had led to some questioning of Deng's economic approach. Those in positions of power who opposed the direction promoted by Deng gained greater influence, arguing that the economic reforms he had instituted had in fact caused the widespread protests, which had ultimately been quelled with terrible violence on Deng's orders on the night of June 3rd, 1989. He retired from public life to spend his days behind the high walls of his courtyard house in Beijing on Miliang Ku Hutong just north of the Forbidden City and the Chinese Communist Party compound of Zhongnanhai. Here he spent time with his children and grandchildren, walking the same path around his courtyard to visit his pond and its goldfish, playing bridge and watching football on television. He was sure, however, to keep a close and watchful eye on the political landscape of the country and the actions of his chosen successor, Jiang Zemin, the former party secretary of Shanghai. A more cautious attitude prevailed following Deng's retirement. Growth targets were lowered, economic controls were tightened, and the trend towards opening markets was reversed. The state took back control. If not the end of China's economic advancement, it seemed like a drastic recalibration, a turn inward once more. January 17th, 1992 was a typical freezing day in Beijing, the temperature barely breaking zero. Deng's private train departed from the capital's main railway station, an architectural relic of the late 1950s near the centre of the city, which inelegantly melds socialist-realist scale and traditional Chinese detail. Those few who knew of Deng's trip believed that he was, on that January day in 1992, simply setting out on a holiday to the more temperate southern provinces. He had frequently wintered there in recent years, accompanied by his family but it did not take long to become clear to those back in Beijing that this journey was political, not personal. By the time Deng's diesel train arrived in the city of Shenzhen, 1,200 miles from the capital, on the far southern edge of the country, two days later, news had already got back to Jiang Zemin that he needed to pay attention to this seemingly innocuous journey. Having grown increasingly frustrated as he watched his legacy being dismantled, Deng had begun in secret to plan his southern tour in late 1991. His intention was to return one last time for a trip around the cities of Guangdong province, bordering Hong Kong in the far south, which he had helped transform into engines of China's remarkable economic transformation, and to make his case for continued reform and opening one last time. Telling the officials he met on his trip, telling everyone he met, that China must not turn back on expanding and reforming its economy, he characterised any ambitions that failed to develop the country and improve people's lives as the road to ruin. This podcast will explore the legacy of Deng's journey, following his route stop by stop and interviewing those with insight into the history of this period and the places Deng visited. For this first episode, I'm joined by Julian Gewertz to discuss the decade leading up to the Southern Tour of 1992 and some of the myths that swirl around the period known as reform and opening. Julian is a senior fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He is also a research scholar at the Columbia Harvard China and the World Programme and a lecturer in history at Columbia University. 
Dr. Goertz is the author of Unlikely Partners, Chinese Reformers, Western Economists and the Making of Global China, and a new book on the tumult, legacies and historical manipulation of the 1980s in China, forthcoming in 2021 from Harvard University Press. So, hi, Julian, and thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. I wanted to start by going back to basics a little bit and thinking about the term that we, as a shorthand, use to refer to the period we're talking about today. And broadly speaking, that'll be from 1978 to to the Southern Tour of, of 1992. It's called reform and opening or reform and opening up. A lot of verbs in that in that phrase. Maybe not very helpful for people to get a sense of what actually was happening. What was being reformed and opened? And, and is it perhaps a bit too neat a phrase to capture the complexity of what happened in that 14-year period? It's a fascinating question. And the truth is that the term reform and opening itself is protean and vague and therefore very useful for Chinese politics. So in the beginning of this whole process, actually the set phrase, reform and opening, Gaigo Kaifang, was not being used. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, the term reform was used, and there was lots of talk of opening, but it wasn't a set phrase until the mid-1980s, and I'll come back to why that matters in just a second. So basically, to start off, the primary task of the Chinese leadership, beginning in the Uh, immediate aftermath of Mao Zedong's death, was to figure out why China was so poor, despite many decades of pursuing different development paths under Mao, and to more fully integrate China into the international economic system. And the benefits of that were clear to the Chinese leadership at the time. The goal was to raise living standards, to increase national income, and to develop technologically and and economically through the benefits of interdependence. So what was being reformed was the planned economy, but also society, politics, the technological infrastructure of the country. So we often think of that phrase, reform and opening, as being just about the economy, but actually its ambit was much broader. And then what was being opened? Well, this to me is a complex uh, question to answer, because on the one hand, the rhetoric was very much that China was being opened, that this you know, broad concept of a nation was being opened. In fact, what was being opened was a coastal region, primarily, the big cities in China, along the coast that had been designated to be tip of the spear here. And there was tremendous, there were tremendous limits placed on that opening, which was centered primarily on the economy, but of course brought with it a variety of economic and intellectual and social forces that were not things that the Chinese Communist Party wanted to open their country to. Uh, A metaphor that Deng Xiaoping used was of opening the window and some flies came in alongside all of the breezes and good things that the Chinese leadership decided it wanted. So I I suppose to, to wrap up, you know, the 
main concept of reform and opening was always one intended to be limited, bounded, controlled by the Chinese leadership. But there was a sense of tremendous upside if they could pull this off correctly. And one of the characteristics of the period is an enormous amount of back and forth and push and pull within the leadership. And there's a sort of simplified narrative that perhaps listeners are familiar with, which which goes along with this notion of of the neat phrase of reform and opening, whereby, you know, in, in December of 1978 at the third plenum of the 11th Party Congress, the process is started. And the historiographic version of that in China, and to some extent in the West as well, is is one where the nuance and complexity of what happened has been dialed down a little bit. Jazzy Young, who I know you're writing about at the moment, who was who was premier in the eighties, later to be purged. He he wrote about the idea that there were two main viewpoints, two main contesting ideologies within the party, and one of these was represented by Deng Xiaoping, and one was represented by. Chen Yun, and maybe you can tell us who Chen Yun was, and is that too crude a binary division to sort of capture some of this nuance that we're trying to get at? Well, before I answer your question directly, let me just go back to the point that you made about the third plenum in in December of 1978. This is a mythic event at which Deng Xiaoping supposedly in a visionary way, launched this entire process of reform and opening. But I think it's important to emphasize that scholars have now shown, both scholars inside China, I'm thinking in particular of Han Gang at East China Normal University, and outside of China, such as Fred Tevis and Warren Sun in Australia, they've shown that actually this process began years earlier, under uh, Mao Zedong himself at certain moments uh, during the late Cultural Revolution period where uh, rural development was starting up, and then particularly under Mao's designated successor, Hua Guofang. Hmm. And that the third plenum itself has been mythologized in a systematic way for political ends to build up the sense of a break, not just after Mao, but after Hua Guofang was outmaneuvered by Deng Xiaoping, and particularly to build up this notion that China set out resolutely on a new path, marching toward the market, and that what followed was somewhat inevitable. I say this because I think as we go back into the 1980s as a period of contestation, as you describe a period of back and forth and tumult and uncertainty, we have to realize how much myth-making there has Mm. been about this history. From the very beginning, this period was being mythologized as it was also being uh, developed and played out in real time. Hmm. And to answer your question, so Deng Xiaoping himself was not a uh, great economic thinker. Deng had a set of ideas, which were that China needed to develop more and faster And he, at certain moments, was very active in setting the direction of policy. But in fact, Deng was very removed from the details. And particularly during the 1980s, once he had maneuvered himself into power and appointed some next generation folks, particularly Zhao Ziyang and Hu Yaobang, to run matters, Deng was often fairly withdrawn 
from the daily churn of policymaking. Mm. Now, in Zhao Ziyang's memoirs, he, as you said, points to uh, Deng and Chen Yun as representing two different visions of China's economic development. And, and that actually is in some ways quite true. Chen Yun had come out of the planning apparatus. He had many decades of experience in developing Chinese five-year plans and running the uh, economy, particularly after moments of the devastating campaigns, the Great Leap Forward, the need to rebuild the Chinese economy from those crisis points was one of Chen Yun's specialties. But in that, actually, he had worked very closely with Deng Xiaoping. And they together were crucial figures in the early period of, of reform and opening, working very much in partnership. Uh, Deng Xiaoping himself in the late 1970s supported many of Chen Yun's economic ideas. But it is true that during the 1980s, Chen Yun wanted more balanced, more measured development. He was opposed to running up deficits. He was opposed to relying too much on foreign trade and exchange. He was opposed to moving too quickly because of his fears about inflation and overheating the economy. Many of those ideas that Chen Yun gave voice to were not somehow anti-reform, as is at times a stereotype, but actually were just about a different vision of reform, one that was more moderate and perhaps more sustainable. But Deng Xiaoping was fixated on speed. He was tremendously impatient. And, you know, in, in Chinese descriptions of him, you know, they always talk about how his, his pichi, his temperament was very good. But in fact, he was, you know, at certain mm -hmm. moments impatient and, you know, would bang his fist on the table and the like. And, you know, we can see that in the kinds of policies that he favored and frankly, in the people who he promoted, both Zhao mm -hmm. Ziyang and Hu Bang by the mid-1980s were very much on board with the faster growth vision and the Chen Yun idea of more balanced, slow development with, with the sectors of heavy industry, light industry, and agriculture kept in balance was uh, very much out of vogue. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it, with, with this simplified mythical narrative that is being constructed, it, it lends itself to the construction of heroes and villains. And you're right, Chen Yun is often presented as somebody who was an opponent of reform, but as you say, sometimes was was counselling just to go a little bit slower. And actually that as things developed, perhaps didn't look like a particularly sensible position to take. And I mean Hogor Fung is another one who you know, that period from seventy six to seventy eight is often skipped over in sort of popular histories of the period because people perhaps don't quite know what to make of uh, Hua's contribution, and he's sort of seen as a slightly ineffectual figure who's sidelined by Deng effectively in, in, in 1978, never to return. But those are, again, simplifications, I suppose. That's right. You know, there, there are these different layers on which the story of China's reform and opening is operating. One is the economic, the, the material, the changes in the economy, in ordinary people's lives, the kind of consumer goods that they could access, as well as the you know, influx of, of foreign capital and mm. the you know, rise of China as a major exporter. That's one layer. 
And there's another layer, which is the the politics of the period, the maneuvering in Beijing to have for various officials to have advantage over one another. There's another layer, which is the intellectual ideas about the economy, the market, the political system, the relationship between the foreign and the Chinese, etc. And these layers, among others, were interacting very dynamically. And so sometimes these stereotyped images are based on only, only one, but I think we have to understand all three of these layers in a, in a kind of uh, dynamic tension. And when you add on to that, society itself, the vibrant mm-hmm. contradictions of Chinese society in this period, when you add on to that, the extraordinary propagandistic manipulation of this period, particularly after 1989, after the Tiananmen crackdown, you really begin to understand that there are many different versions of the truth about the period of reform and opening. The period itself was in some ways designed to tolerate increasing pluralization in the economy and in society, but that uh, pluralization was not allowed to stand after 1989. And so as a result, the need to impose a single very tidy narrative onto the period with, as you Mm -hmm. said, clear heroes and clear villains, what the kind of classical tradition of Chinese historiography would call a baobian or praise-blame history. This, mm-hmm. this baobian model is, is very much is still vital in, in how people think about this period, and it goes right to how we understand Deng Xiaoping himself. One of the characteristics that I find interesting in terms of the simplification is the recourse to metaphor and analogy which is true if you look at ccp historiography generally and you know in in terms of metaphors deployed you have there's ones about bird cages and cats and the one that perhaps people will know best is dung's phrase to describe the process as being like crossing a river by feeling for the stones and i guess it is a metaphor that you pick up on in your in your book and likely partners and i suppose the idea of it is that on the one bank is this centrally planned economy that that uh, dung took over and on the other side is a more market oriented one uh, and greater economic strength and success one thing that i always think about that as a metaphor is actually that's a pretty bad way to cross a river right that actually it reflects the fact that the reform and opening process was sometimes lacking in a clear and careful strategy and i wonder where what the cause of that was i mean i suppose one explanation is that the people in charge didn't have experience of transitioning the economy from what it had been to what they wanted to become jonathan spence has talked about this process as being a series of swerves retreats and sudden jumps in policy that there is was the result of the of the conflict in the higher echelons of the party what do you think in terms of what the cause was of the sort of back and forth and th- perhaps the weight between those those two particular influences. So the, the metaphor of crossing the river by feeling for the stones is a really uh, generative one, I think, because, you know, the way that you interpreted it is is one possibility. I think we can also think about it as reflecting the total uncertainty about the end point of mm-hmm. the, the uncertainty about 
where this was all going, what in fact the other riverbank was. And to my mind, you know, that gets to the core of your question. The reality is that in the late 1970s, there was no clarity among the Chinese leadership about where they were going in this process. So there was a broad sense that, yes, China should quadruple its gross industrial output by the year 2000, people's living standards should increase. But how that would happen and what the Chinese economy and the broader Chinese society and system of political economy would look like to achieve those goals, totally uncertain, unknown, Mm -hmm. and therefore intensely debated. And, you know, to my mind, the stereotyped version of the period that has, you know, sort of factions battling out over specific choices and the broader vision of the Chinese system is is a little wrong for because it is it presupposes that these factions knew what they mm. wanted as an end point and the truth is that the characteristics of elite politics in this period were much more fluid ad hoc premised on uncertainty mm. and and personality and much less a uh, set piece battle between you know, total marketization and Mm. sort of reactionary element. That's just wrong. The reality is that in this period, as in other socialist countries around the world that China learned from, the question was one of degrees of change, degrees of marketization, specific domains in which things had to change faster than others. And lots of debate about priorities, sequencing, and the end point. I want to talk a little bit about where the leadership drew on for um, inspiration when it came to some of the policies they adopted as part of reform and opening. And, and you write in your book about really quite a wide ranging search that they undertook, both looking at uh, successful uh, socialist models and then Western models, uh, including places like Germany and the the UK and the US. Where, if you were to sort of rank these in terms of influence, where was Dung and the leadership looking most closely? uh, Or where would you characterize as having the most profound influence on the plans that they came up with? Well, one of the things that struck me most as I began to look into the study and, you know, adaptation of, of, you know, ideas about reform and socialist systems from abroad was actually how wide ranging and eclectic the search was Mm -hmm. Uh, that, you know, there was never wholesale importation of any, you know, foreign model or anything like that. It was very much about trying to understand China's experiences better through contrasts and comparisons and, you know, looking even beyond the socialist world to get a better sense of how market economies actually functioned in practice. So, you know, in the beginning of the reform era, of the the post-Mao era, there was a mainly focus on some of the Eastern European countries that had experimented with reform socialism, Yugoslavia uh, being one, uh, followed thereafter by uh, Hungary and and Czechoslovakia. And the influence was profound. 
especially from, from Hungary and Czechoslovakia. There were a number of economists who traveled to China, met with the highest ranking officials, and also had quite detailed interactions, granular interactions with Chinese economic officials. And this was really about the task of figuring out how greater incentives could be brought to bear under a socialist system, how enterprises, state-owned enterprises could be reformed to become more responsive to the demand for their goods and also for the cost of their products, how their budget could be pardoned so that they weren't always losing money with no consequences, and then also how the price system could be reformed to reflect uh, supply and demand more. That was one major stream in this period that I think was, was in a way, the most influential. The, there's That's really a, an interest in looking at liberal market economies, the United States, Britain, others. And what we're seeing there is a really wide-ranging, open-minded desire to understand what the possible lessons from market economies might be for China. There's there's never the sense that they might become as liberalized, as marketized as mm-hmm. let's say, the United States, but perhaps in central banking or other aspects of government policy, there is an opportunity to learn from and even emulate those countries. And, and so to my mind, those are two streams of influence that are both really influential, really important, but always on China's terms, always on with the agency firmly in the hands of the Chinese economists and officials who were engaging in this kind of interaction. Well, we talked about this process of experimentation and drawing on some of those ideas. I suppose one of the key symbols of that experimentation were the special economic zones that were, were set up sort of starting in 1979, Shenzhen in particular being now the most successful and symbolic of of that. But again, I mean, the story of the SEZs is to some extent you know, the story of reform and opening a miniature in the sense that it is, again, more complex and nuanced than the historiographical narrative would have us think. Certainly in the early years of, of the special economic zones, these were controversial places in terms of the way they were viewed by conservatives in the leadership. What were the problems that people on that side of the argument had with the special economic zones? And were some of those arguments legitimate, do you think? Well, look, of course, the arguments were legitimate to many of the people who were making them. You know, I I think it's I I don't think it's my place as a historian to say that, you know, their arguments were anything, anything other than that, especially because many of the people who argued against the special economic zones did so out of a deep belief that China was going to be endangering the entire socialist project Hmm. uh, that had guided the party leadership since the the revolution that brought them to power. And that risk, you know, it's, it's of course, makes total sense that they would be concerned about that. The concept behind the special economic zones was that certain enclaves could be walled off, carved out, and could have much more freewheeling international trade and market forces at play than the rest of the country. And, you know, that is not an unheard of idea. In fact, there was all sorts of study 
of export processing zones, special zones in other countries from, you know, in Europe to Singapore that helped shape the development of these SEZs, as they're known, the special economic zones. But the truth is that these zones, this model, invoked uh, or evoked a very troubled history of foreign concessions during the imperial era when uh, foreign powers had a sort of these treaty ports that in fact were some of the same places that became SEZs. So there was a question about undermining China's sovereignty, making these enclaves in which foreigners could have freer reign, that it, it, you know brought this very difficult and painful history to mind for many people. But the proponents of these zones argued that they would allow, exactly as you said, for experimentation, for a wider range of activity than the leadership would be comfortable allowing throughout the country, and that they would therefore be a way of containing the market forces and the international influences that the Chinese leadership was permitting to flourish uh, more than they had before. So the negative side of the SEZs was also for the proponents of those policies part of their uh, potential advantages. But, and I think this is just crucial to emphasize, it was not clear again what the SEZs would actually look like in practice when they were decided upon. The idea that this was going to be sort of, you know, a series of little free market uh, enclaves with, you know, total freedom was very much not the concept. It was much more about zones in which to experiment, to push farther, zones that would propel economic growth elsewhere in the country and that would give the leadership more freedom, not less. And one interesting historical tidbit that I think is uh, reflective of some of the worries that the people in the leadership had is that uh, Chen Yun forced the name change from initially they were going to be referred to as special zones and he wanted it to be clear that these were special economic zones. And I suppose this was reflective of concerns that people might infer that the economic liberalization that was going on in these initially these four sites um, on the coast of China might also imply um, some sort of political liberalization. And I wanted just to talk a little bit about the relationship between those two things and Deng's position um, on, on political liberalization. I mean, there are moments, aren't there, during this period where those calls grow louder in 1978, for example, you have the democracy wall in, in Sudan, in, in Beijing, uh, which Deng initially is sort of supportive of and then changes his mind when, when the fifth modernization of democracy is called for. And then in December 1986, there are student protests. There's an article published in People's Daily quoting Deng in that talking about how in carrying out political reform, daring and determination should come first, prudent second, which seemed to fan the flames of the protests. But afterwards, he clamped down quite strongly, although avoided the military action, obviously, that is taken in 1989. Was there an evolution of Deng's position 
over the period that we're talking about in terms of political change and reform? Are we misinterpreting some of the things he said as being perhaps more significant than they were intended to be when he said them? I think this is an area where the focus on Deng Xiaoping leads us to miss some of the key dynamics. So just to answer the the part of your question about, you know, the that moment in, from, from, you know, in the late 1970s and in 1980, you know, Deng Xiaoping is trying to make sure that Hua Guofeng, who's Mao's designated successor, is done with. And mm. the idea that, you know, he's criticizing over-concentration of power, that he's saying there needs to be, you know, you know, a, a sort of more of a break with the methods of governance of the past. This is very much a set of ideas that he is weaponizing to, mm. you know, help ensure that Hua Guofeng is taken down and that he, Deng Xiaoping, is elevated and is able to put in his chosen protégés, Hu Yaobang and Zhao Ziyang, into the top positions of party and government power. So for Deng, that that you know moment of support for political reform, you know, yes, there is a sense that the party could benefit from uh, you know a somewhat uh, more modernized way of governance, and that's real. But the uh, crucial thing that's on his mind is how do I justify getting this this shift of of power to be yeah. really entrenched. And why this matters so much, to my mind, is that he gives voice in doing so to ideas that others who have perhaps more genuine desire to push forward political reforms are able to take up. And you know, this is a tried and true method in Chinese politics. He, Deng Xiaoping, says we must uh, push back against overconcentration of power and that becomes a rallying cry for those who want to impose, you know, somewhat greater limits on the centralized authority of the party state, who want to separate party and government, who want to mm. implement deeper and farther reaching reforms. And Deng himself is very happy to kind of leave his calls for political reform on the back burner. He, you know, especially after there is the sort of beginning of the worker strikes in Poland in 1980, the mm. leadership gets quite worried by what they've seen. And so the, those calls for political reform very much are deprioritized. But later in the decade, and this is an area where we just are now beginning to have a much deeper understanding, and, and you know, this is at the core of the, the book that I've just finished writing. In 1986 and 1987, there is an extraordinary push for political reform within the Chinese system, spearheaded by Zhao Ziyang himself. You know, earlier in the 80s, Hu Yaobang is really pushing for some major reforms, uh, some of which happen, some of which don't. Hu Yaobang is removed from power in early 1987 because, in part, of a, a student protest movement that you alluded to, which, you know, is very much calling for uh, greater liberalization and is, you know, met with, frankly, very little 
responsiveness by the Chinese Communist Party, though not with the violence in 1989. And that protest movement subsides, but Hu Yaobang is held responsible and removed from power. And one would think, wow, well, there was this big protest movement. The general secretary of the party was removed from power. You know, they're probably going to double down on this, you know, brutal authoritarian model. To the contrary, mm-hmm. the year 1987, you know, and the 13th Party Congress held that autumn sees a real push for separating the party and government, for imposing you know, a new set of, of governance norms on aspects of the party and the government, you know, it's, it's a real moment of opportunity that uh, is spearheaded, as I said, by Zhao Ziyan. So we're seeing as late as 1987, a prospect at the highest levels of the party for, you know, quite meaningful political reforms. And to just jump ahead a moment, it is really only with the brutal crackdown of June 1989 that that process is terminated. There are a series of dynamics that play out that cause it to run into trouble earlier. But 1989 is that key juncture, key moment at which the momentum and the energies for political reform, which Deng Xiaoping had allowed, uh, though done much less to encourage than some might say, are really cut off. And in in the year or so running up to the 1989 protests, as well as the swelling support for, in, in some quarters, for the kind of reform, political reform uh, and changes we're talking about, there were economic issues that contributed to them, inflation being one of them and corruption being another, huge rises in inflation in 88 and and early 89. And there was a dual price system, which which Milton Friedman, I think this is from your book, actually uh, talks about it being an open invitation to corruption and waste. And, And both of those cause understandable social concern with the the potential for the problems of inflation in particular. Were were they foreseen by those who were in positions of economic control? Was this a a worry that they had already thought about or learnt about perhaps from some of the economies around the world that they've been studying? Yes. So the question of inflation throughout the 1980s is one of real debate in China, because there had not been open inflation during the period of state-set prices. So there's there's not a lot of immediate experience with inflation, but there's tremendous concern, fear even, of inflation, because during the 1940s, hyperinflation was one of the dynamics during the Chinese Civil War that Mm -hmm. really undermined the nationalist government and allowed the Chinese Communist Party to come to power. So there's a feeling that inflation is is political at the same time that it's economic and imposes real dangers. And Chen Yun is in some ways uh, really prescient in warning that, you know, the Chinese people are not psychologically going to be prepared to handle inflation, that price rises need to be managed very, you know, strictly and 
that's one of many reasons for the set of economic views that he propounds. But the other segments of the Chinese leadership, particularly Zhao Ziyang, are much less concerned about inflation. You know, there is a lot of interest in uh, countries that had experienced high rates of growth and high inflation at the same time. And some of Zhao's advisors tell him that actually there's a lot of evidence that, and this is, you know, frankly, not entirely accurate, but that there's a lot of evidence that high rates of inflation and high rates of growth go together. And Mm -hmm. that actually there's a theory in China in this period that uh, is much, much criticized subsequently called the beneficial inflation theory. The idea that inflation actually might even be good for economic growth. And, you know, this, these sets of ideas, you know, I don't want to go into, you know, too much detail and, you know, bore your listeners, but basically the desire to grow quickly, even if there are real negative ramifications for uh, ordinary people's pocketbooks and all of that is, is dominant among that set of officials. And so inflation is, is in some sense foreseen, but its effects were not well understood. And so in 1988, there's a kind of a, a somewhat abortive attempt at a very rapid price reform that immediately upon being announced causes panic buying, real chaos. And the Chinese leadership says, gosh, we have not adequately understood the dynamics of the economy that we've created. We have not adequately understood how ordinary people who in some ways have been really benefiting from this process, to be sure, also might not be feeling secure economically, might be very worried about the impacts of inflation on their ability to you know, do the simple stuff, put food on the table. And mm-hmm. that leads to a real, uh, a much more slow, retrenched economic agenda immediately from 1988 and that is, of course, then still in place for several years after the crackdown in 1989. Frankly, the student protest in 1989, you know, those are driven by, you know, ideals in, in part. But for students and workers who protest in 1989, the economic frustration epitomized by inflation, high rates of inflation, is another major reason that people are so willing to get out in the streets. And and as you say, there is a retrenchment, particularly often written about as, as happening immediately post the protests of 89, a correction where economic growth targets are reduced and there's a kind of intentional cooling down of, of the economy. And that's something that leads a few years later to, I mean, Deng Xiaoping over the subsequent period makes periodic calls to start the process up again and is ignored. And then in, in early 1992, sets off on his famous Southern tour. I wonder, we've been talking a lot about the myth of this era. Uh, to me, the Southern tour seems an integral part of this. I wonder what your view is on on how practically significant this moment was in terms of the influence that it had on the ground at the time, or whether it's been sort of co-opted into a pleasing 
bit of historiography whereby Dunn comes back sort of like the Rolling Stones on one final tour. You know, he goes and he reignites this process. What's your sense of where the truth lies on that? Well, the truth is somewhere in between. You know, the Southern tour was created in real time to be a myth. Dung wanted it to be seen as a historic act with great meaning, even as an abstraction, at the same time that it was, of course, quite a literal trip, as your project is reminding us. So I think to sort of start off in thinking about the Southern Tour, you know, we should remember that Dung, as you said, had been trying repeatedly to, over the past several years, you know, the preceding several years, to get the faster market reform, faster growth agenda back in place. You know, he had fully supported the uh, need to put this retrenchment in place and keep it in place after the, you know, massacre and violence in 89. But for Dung, as I've said, you know, fast growth was the goal, along with keeping the party in power. And once he felt, you know, well, actually, we've managed the immediate crisis, you know, we've gotten through this, this moment of chaos, etc. He then immediately began to feel, well, so if we're going to stay in power and be successful, we have got to get the growth rates back up and start, you know, making sure that the market forces, private businesses, entrepreneurs, all of that are being adequately supported. Hmm. So in 1992, Dung goes to these special economic zones and to these southern cities and basically is delivering a message to some of the people who've been powering China's economic growth in the 80s to get back to it. He it was very clear about these messages. But of course, he's also making statements that are targeted back to Beijing that are saying people who don't support this agenda of market reform and faster growth are not the kind of leaders that China needs at this moment. So he's doing mm-hmm. both at once. And the on the ground reality is that a lot of the uh, regions he goes to have somewhat surreptitiously been continuing to engage in, you know, a slightly faster growth agenda. After he goes, suddenly these new statistics pop up that, you know, growth has resumed in some of these regions at quite a high level. You know, mm-hmm. of course we can ask whether there might have been, you know, some of this activity continuing even during the retrenchment and just not being acknowledged so openly. But certainly, you know, he does have an effect in some places, but it's quite local, that dimension. The national dimension, the political dimension takes longer, but it is that dimension that is central to the myth of the Southern Tour. And subsequent to his return um, to Beijing, and you talk about this in in your book, there's a symbolic shift in terminology in terms of the way that the economy is referred to, where it changes from being a 
socialist planned commodity economy to a socialist market economy. And I wonder if you could just, I mean, that sound, they sound quite dry economic terms, but what was the significance of that change? And, and what is the difference between a socialist market economy from, say, the economy of Western states like the US or the UK? What are the substantive remaining differences between those two systems? Well, you're right that the somewhat cardboardy rhetoric of socialist market economy doesn't sound very exciting. But in fact, this was a a really significant endorsement of the market itself. Now, yes, a socialist market, and we can talk more about that in a moment, but the question of the status of the market, of whether the Chinese leadership would say, we do markets here, we endorse the idea of the market. That question was hotly contested, and it was contested. It remained contested, frankly, even after this endorsement. But the decision, you know, use the word symbolic, and it is symbolic. But in fact, it's also a signal to people all around the country that private business, that the kind of market activity that had been flourishing, was being endorsed and elevated and enshrined by the party leadership. Now. That is fine to say, but your question about the differences, you know, what this system actually means is, is so important because I think for a long time, you know, Americans and other uh, people from liberal market economies, you know, looked at this and kind of, they forgot about the socialist part. Mm-hmm. They said, you know, socialist market economy, that sounds like, you know, a euphemism for just a market economy. But I think it's really important to stress that it's not. There was very much the sense that this was a different and alternative model that was being developed. It wasn't fully developed at that point, of course, but that the socialist aspects of the system, which ranged from the you know huge and enduring role of the the state-owned enterprises and the party state in the economy, you know, to at the very local level, the importance of party officials in governing local allocations of capital and land and other, you know, and factors of production, you know, this is central to how the system was intended to work. This wasn't some sort of, you know, shortcoming in the process of market reform. This was how the system was intended to work and how the, the policies that were being developed, the hope was very much from the officials governing this process that they would be able to maintain this mixed system, that it wouldn't be a way station on an endpoint to unfettered capitalism, but that it would be a distinctive form of, as they would say, socialism with Chinese characteristics in which markets had a central role and a publicly acknowledged role, but never an unlimited role. I want to finish just by bringing us to the present day. And we've talked a bit about the the way in which the narrative was simplified to focus on Deng. And we've touched on one of the reasons for that being, of course, that both Jazza Yang and Hu Yabang to differing degrees were written out of the narrative and so the narrative comes to focus on Deng, perhaps partly for that reason. There's been a suggestion more recently that Deng himself is being subject to a revisionist version of history and that there's a move 
in some museum historiography to foreground Xi Jong-shun, who happens to be Xi Jinping's father. He was in charge of Guangdong province in the late 70s and, and early 80s and, and did play an important role in encouraging the leadership in Beijing to open that part of China up. I wonder whether you can tell us what your view of that is. I think there's a danger, isn't there, of drawing from single data points on this. And certainly I was in China last summer and in Shenzhen, for example, you can still go and see you know, Deng's bedroom as it was on the Southern Tour in Shenzhen Museum. And there wasn't a sense there that he was being written out of the narrative, whereas in, in exhibitions in Beijing, there has been some suggestion that, that Deng's been sidelined. So to my mind, there are two things going on there, which, which actually, you know, aren't completely related, though they both fall under the, you know, broad heading of myth-making with political purpose, let's say. One is the very, you know, dear leader style upgrading of Xi Jinping's status in the party pantheon. You know, he is actually a fascinating figure. The political scientist Joseph Turigian is writing a book on him. And, you know, there's there's a tremendous amount there that we, we as scholars want to know about. But the decision to elevate him in this way is clearly part of the broader cult of personality around Xi Jinping, his son. And, you know, that's, that's uh, some ways par for the course in a system in which the cult of personality is being so so obviously increased at all levels. And, you know, the extent to which this is simply eager officials looking mm-hmm. to please the the top leader or, you know, a more directive, uh, deliberate process of top-down myth-making is uncertain at the moment. But that's one thing that's happening. And it's very interesting because it shows how much the official accounts of this seminal period in Chinese history follow power in the moment. And of course, that's not just a Chinese phenomenon. History around Mm -hmm. the world is manipulated to suit the the needs and purposes of those who are in power at any given moment. But the point about Deng Xiaoping is, I think, a, a more interesting and generative one, because Deng's legacy is still central to the Chinese Communist Party today, no doubt. And for Xi Jinping, there are at least two reasons, so I think there are even more, but there are at least two why Deng is inconvenient. One is that Xi Jinping wants to have himself, she himself, be perceived as a leader closer uh, to Mao in level of importance, historic weight, and Deng is a kind of awkward intermediary. So in Xi's desire to be seen as, you know, closer to being on the same level as Mao, you know, Deng has to be somewhat downplayed simply because Xi Jinping is now the end of history, now the arrival point mm-hmm. of China's past. And so anybody in the middle uh, with Mao is, you know, is just inconvenient in that way. But the second is, you know, to go to the point that we were discussing earlier about how things can be used in ways that their authors or initial utterances did not intend. Deng Xiaoping's comments that I described earlier about the need to 
limit over centralization of power mm-hmm. and separate the party and government functions, those kinds of things are, of course, profoundly at odds with Xi Jinping's vision for China and for his own rule. So Deng has an additional point of, shall we say, inconvenience, which is that he, in his officially sanctioned, endlessly lionized and propagandized texts, actually said lots of things that sound like they're critiquing Xi Jinping. <laughs> so that is, of course, a reason that Xi Jinping has, has been somewhat downplaying aspects of Deng's legacy. And of course, we've also seen that some critics of Xi have used quotations from Deng to suggest subtly, of course, never wanting to cross the line, but to suggest that what Xi is doing is at odds with the best traditions of even the party itself. And, you know, that all reminds us that this history is explosive, it is politically central, it is politically dangerous, and I certainly don't think we've seen anything close to the last of how it will be manipulated by those in power to serve their ends. And it'll be fascinating to see how that process continues. Of course, Xi's removal of term limits being another aspect of uh, Deng's legacy, him having imposed them, which is is controversial. I wanted to ask about your book on Zhao Ziyang, which I know uh, you're working on. I, I, I strongly recommend to listeners Unlikely Partners, and I'm very excited to read your book on Zhao. What's the news on that? When might we expect to see it? So I have uh, a new book on the 1980s, and you know Zhao Ziyang is a central figure in it. And it should be out late next year. So I'll send you more information as soon as, as soon as it's available. Wonderful. Well, we'll look forward to that. And thank you again for joining us today, Julian. Great. Well, it's a pleasure to talk.